Hello and welcome back. I'm Roger Royce, host of the 10,000 Startups Podcast, where each week we bring to you another episode focusing on an area of the law specific to startup companies. This is for you, the founders, the advisors, anybody who works in the startup community, the legal issues that you really need to know about. This week, we're going to talk with Stephen Malm. He's counsel in our labor employment practice group in San Francisco at Haynes and Boone LLP, where he leads the immigration practice group. Steve has vast experience representing small, mid-sized, and even large companies in immigration and compliance matters. And, you know, here in Silicon Valley, where, where I practice, far more than half of the companies that I see come into this valley tend to be from other countries. And they all have immigration issues, every one of them, because they want to bring people over. They want to know what the founders can work there. They want to, you know, that it's we, we can't get away from it at all. So I end up contacting Steve quite a bit. So, Steve, thanks for being here today. I know this is going to be really interesting to our audience. Absolutely, Roger. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. So let me let me kind of start off with the big question, and we'll drill down into the details in a minute. But the one question I get from everybody is the founder says, hey, I'm here on this tourist visa or whatever, and I've been here a long time, but uh, I want to start a company. Uh, am I allowed to do that? Uh, what's the answer to that question? Yeah. So, um, you know, as with any question, there's a, there's a bit of nuance to that response. But uh, generally, there is guidance that says that someone that is here, either if, if they're of a nationality that doesn't require a visa, such as um, uh, most European countries and uh, Korea, Japan, uh, then they might be here on a, on a 90 day uh, visa waiver uh, uh, program um, type of um, uh, stay, which, which doesn't require them to actually have a visa, but they only get 90 days. Or they could be here as a visitor, whether it's a business visitor, which is a B1, or they could have a, a standard visitor visa that's both uh, business related or uh, visitor for pleasure. And during those stays, there is guidance that states there are certain activities that are permissible um, that, that someone can undertake if they are an entrepreneur or um, starting a business Um Generally, the, the limits of, the, of those categories um, are uh, it's phrased as meetings or, or undertaking steps to establish the business or court investment. Um, it can be a, a fine line uh, in terms of what crosses over that line. Um, and, and it's clear that um, someone in the U.S. as a visitor, whether it's as a visa waiver or as a B-1 visitor, may not receive um, compensation or in exchange for rendering services um, that that crosses over into what immigration deems employment and uh, and if activities are starting to cross over that line and it's not merely engaging in meetings or or meeting with investors courting investment or undertaking certain uh, activities to um, to get the business started, um, that person needs to uh, find a viable work uh, authorization or some, some visa category that enables them to work um, to make uh, things more comfortable, not just, uh, you know, um, during that stay, but when the next time they're traveling to the U.S. Because when people are coming to the U.S. 
and they're engaging in meetings and they may be doing things that are entirely permissible as a business visitor. But if, if there's a, a higher, higher frequency of visiting, which naturally there often is, if, if really the focus is on expanding or, or founding the business in the U.S., um, that that tends to draw scrutiny and makes for uncomfortable interactions with uh, with the border officials known as uh, Customs and Border Protection um, at the airport. The, yeah, the board, before we get into that, let, let me pause on that for a second, yeah. um, because what you said, I think, is really significant because because a typical startup company client, the founder is going to form a company here, a corporation. Usually uh, they're going to be a shareholder, which I think is OK. They're going to be a director. They're not getting paid for that. But then they're almost always also going to be an officer. And of course, that makes them a statutory employee here in California. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what I'm hearing you say is that's that's probably OK as long as they don't take any compensation. Is that right? That's right. So um, what I will do for someone, if if, if there's an abroad company um, in existence and it's opening or expanding operations to the U.S. or opening a subsidiary in the U.S. is um, make clear in a letter. So th this is common for someone traveling for, for that type of a purpose to carry a letter from the abroad company that outlines the activities that they will be engaging in when they're in the U.S. and makes clear in that letter that they will receive no compensation from a U.S. source during their stay. So that that is a clear prohibition, and and it's it's an area where people can can slip up if they haven't been thinking about it. Yeah. So let's go to the next question they have. Then is like, well, what if I do want to get paid by my company? Uh, can I have? You mentioned a B one visa. I know there's something called an H one B. And then they say, is there a way that the company can sponsor me and employ me and bring me over and get me a work permit? Is that possible? Yeah, so um, we we refer to the the various work authorization visas as uh, as the alphabet soup of visa categories. And uh, as an immigration lawyer, we're we're running through that A through Z list constantly to to see what might be a good fit for someone who's um, say an entrepreneur founding a company. And often, so there there are quite a few that you can eliminate. Um, but the main ones that, that you'll see are um, an L-1 visa. If you're founding a new office in the U.S. and you're either an executive or you're a manager, or you could even be a specialized knowledge employee uh, coming to open um, the U.S. office. If, if the U.S. business has not been operating for at least a year, then there's an L-1 visa that's filed as a quote-unquote new office L-1. And uh, the key to that is that the person needs to have been an employee for the business abroad for at least a year in an executive managerial or specialized knowledge capacity uh, can become a little tricky if if someone new is appointed and and you know they haven't worked for the company abroad for a year and and you want to bring them over as an executive or a manager um, can also be tricky if that person was not, actually on the payroll of the foreign company, which can be the case for high level folks where, where there's not actually a paper trail showing they were an employee. They may have received other sorts of um, you know, payouts, but it's not, uh, not payroll. And, uh, and that's challenging for, for an L1. But generally that's one of the first options you're gonna look at is um, 
opening a new office as an L1 visa where you can transfer someone from abroad who has worked for the abroad entity for at least a year. And this is something that uh, people really need to think about uh, and, and the other visa categories that may be available when they structure the company. Uh, it makes things a lot easier if, if there are immigration considerations in a case, if, uh, if there's a clear ownership um, relation that, that is easy to chart for immigration uh, between the abroad entity and the U.S. entity, and there needs to be a quote-unquote qualifying relationship, meaning it's either a parent subsidiary or there's a qualifying affiliate relationship. Um, and, and so qualifying affiliate means you basically have the same ownership. Um, and then you can transfer that person to the U.S. Now, same ownership is itself something that needs to be strategized carefully because it needs to be the same owners in the same percentage. Uh, so there, parent sub would work out okay. Right? Parent sub is the best way to structure it. And so if, if a primary concern, and as you mentioned, this is often the case, so many companies are founded by, um, by foreign nationals. Um, so immigration can be a paramount concern. Um, setting it up as a parent subsidiary is generally going to be the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Now let's suppose, and that's oftentimes the scenario um, that, you know, we have an existing company that's done well overseas and they want to launch in a U.S. market and bring some of their team over. So that sounds like the most likely approach in that scenario. What if it's a fairly new company here overseas anywhere, brand new, so we don't have that one year of history that would get us the L1 visa? What are the options then? Yeah. So if you don't have the one year abroad, then you start to look at some other options. Uh, one that um, I turn to a lot is the O-1 Extraordinary Ability Visa. And the Extraordinary Ability, it, it certainly, you know, uh, connotes a, a very high standard. And, and, and it is, you know, Extraordinary is a pretty... Um, you know, weighted word that you think, okay, this standard is is going to be challenging to to meet. Uh, but there are there are, you know criteria for the O that you can assess whether whether there's a viable O one case or not. And uh, the term extraordinary, it, it the, that sounds quite daunting, but in reality, these are quite uh, quite attainable. Um, so for an O one extraordinary ability visa, that's something you would look at, say for a founder type entrepreneur that has had. Uh, success in business in the past or in their field um, and uh, and they haven't worked for the company abroad or it's a new company. Um, it, to get the O-1 visa, uh, USCIS publishes criteria on this and you basically need need to meet the, the threshold of, of three of eight criteria. And I'll, I'll just note from experience, the ones that generally we argue to get those three, um, to get the O-1 visa for founder entrepreneurial types, are uh, that they've made original contributions to the in their field, original contributions of major significance in the field. Usually, you can get letters either an independent expert and uh, uh, testimonial letters from from references of that person that can state that yes, they've made original contributions. Um, two, another criteria of the three that we need to meet um, is uh, playing a leading or critical role for an organization with a distinguished reputation. Just anecdotally, that's one we can tend to establish. Um, but generally, this is someone that would have experience already working. You know, somebody is uh, absolutely new and, and hasn't developed a track record of, of business in business or in their field. 
challenging visa category to get. But uh, for people that are a little more experienced in their field and have made those original contributions and have worked in, in leading roles or maybe founded other businesses, that's a criteria that um, is very attainable as well. And then that third one, that, that third criteria is the one where we need to uh, uh, strain a little bit sometimes to get it. But uh, I, I, oftentimes uh, published material in major media about the person or in a trade publication can be satisfied. And frankly, this is not an application that is fixed at the time I consult with someone. You're free to, to sort of help manufacture a stronger case through, hey, you know, maybe a media uh, outlet would want to publish an article about what this person's doing. And, you know, generally the person is very excited about, you know, their their new business and the type of work they're doing and, and uh, such an outlet can be found. And so then we've got our third criteria. Uh, we often will throw in a, a fourth of high salary remuneration at some point in their career. Um, but, uh, you know, three is really that threshold we need to meet. And, uh, it's all about creating a narrative and, uh, you know, having strong reference letters is another key part of this. But um, that that tends to be the category I would look at first if if someone doesn't uh, meet, meet the eligibility. That sounds requirement. like a tough one. Um, and it sounds very fact-based. Uh, what, what about the, the reliant, how about the B visa? That's the one I seem to hear most about. Yeah, so the B visa, again, it, it's for visitors. It's for business visitors. And it, it can be great, um, uh, you know, for initial kind of uh, startup activities. But the concern is when you're using the B visitor visa with uh, greater frequency and your stays are becoming prolonged in the U.S., um, that you start to get questioned at the border and it can become uncomfortable because it's not a, a quote unquote work visa. Mm. Um, doesn't allow you to be paid by the U.S. entity. So the, really what we're solving for when we move over from a B to an O or an L is you don't have to deal with this hassle at the airport anymore. Um, right. And and you can you don't have to, um, you know, um, structure your 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 activities in a way to 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 make sure you're not crossing over into, quote unquote, employment. Um, so the O1 is one that. You know, if you're high enough up in the company, or if you've got enough of a kind of a track record of success, it's it's often one we can get approved for someone, and uh, and uh, and it can be, um, in terms of the petition itself, the operation doesn't even need to really be up and running yet. Uh, you can actually have someone um, serve as your agent to file such a petition, um, rather than have the company uh, be the one to file. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's some creative ways to approach an O1 to make it work, um, but. Yeah. So that's one I wanted to flag. But then, Roger, since, you know, on that topic of what other categories do we look at, there's also something called an E2 investor visa that we'll use. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, yeah. People are very interested in that one. Yeah, so the E2 investor visa, uh, definitely a, a great option if if you're from a country that has an E-investor treaty. So that's really the threshold inquiry about uh, on the E-investor visa. Um, so, uh, of note, um, you know, China does not have an investor visa in E2. So, uh, so there can be quite a few people, um, uh, nor does India. Uh, so th there are a couple, you know, two biggest countries in the world by population don't have this option available to them, but, but many other nationalities do. Um, and the, and the E2 is very similar to the L1, uh, except you don't need that one year of employment abroad. It's, it's all about, are you investing a um, substantial amount of money into a U.S. business? 
Um, it can be directly as an individual or a, 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 in a company abroad, investing the money in the U.S. business. And like the L, uh, someone who qualifies for the E based on their treaty nationality can come to the U.S. as an executive or a manager or in the in the E2 context, rather than specialized knowledge, they call it essential skill worker. Uh, but it becomes a uh, uh, a medium for for transferring large numbers of employees potentially that that hold that same nationality of the company. So, um, if a large percentage of the uh, employees are nationals of that country, then that suddenly becomes a great uh, tool for for um, you know creating uh, uh, the ability to uh, you know bring that knowledge from abroad and transfer employees. Yeah. Do we have the treaty relationship with India? Because I certainly see a lot of companies. Yeah, so India. it would be a total game changer if that ever happens. But as of yet, there is no E2 um, investor treaty with, with with India or China. Both countries, obviously, they're foreign nationals, a large number involved in tech, uh, but they don't they don't have the option of availing of the E2. Um, from from India, I think you'll often see uh, the L1 being used where where they've just gone ahead and made sure they have the one year of employment abroad before opening the US office. Uh, uh, before we leave that, now the E2, did you say that requires an investment into the US company? That's correct, yes. And you have to hire a certain number of employees as well? So, you would want to show a viable business model and, and, and it would uh, contemplate that you would be hiring employees in the U.S., but there are there are mom and pop type E2s where it's literally opening a small restaurant and it, it's not a huge number that you're you're employing. The, the key requirement there is that it, it can't be marginal just for the investor to earn a living for themselves. It should have a broader impact. Uh, and as with any case, it's sort of like I mentioned with the L1, the narrative of the case is very important. Uh, presumably, you know, for the, the clients, Roger, that, you know, in, in the VC or say um, tech entrepreneur space, there's sort of a bigger vision than that type of a mom and pop. But um, it, the fundamental standard there is that it can't be marginal just for the investor to earn a living. So that it, what you want to do with, with an E2 invest, investor application and as as you would do as well with an L1 is present a business plan. So I'm as an attorney, an immigration attorney, you maintain a, a cozy relationship with your business plan writers. So you have a good, a good referral network of, of, of people that can write uh, business plans that, that will uh, address these types of concerns and, and projections for who you would be hiring, how many you would be hiring. Okay, gotcha. Well, good, good to know. Yeah. You know, I noticed that you also do a lot of work with something called an H-1B visa. Does that have any application here in the startup world? It can. Um, it It's limited in its application due to, uh, due to the cap or the quota on H-1Bs. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very high in demand visa. Um, and in the last few years, there have been record numbers of applications. So just for a little more background, there are 85,000 H-1B visas allotted per year. And there's always excess demand for those 85,000. And to deal with that, they run a lottery. And historically, the chances of winning that lottery were around 30 to 40% with slightly higher odds if you had an advanced degree. But there have just been a, a flood of these uh, names submitted into the lottery because of a, a different process, which has made it much easier. 
So people are more speculatively submitting names into that lottery hat, which have made the percentages drop significantly. And to the point where it's not really, it, it's something you could attempt during the lottery season, which is March and April of each year. But the odds of getting that H-1B visa are lower than they've ever been. Um, you know, we're talking 10 to 20% range. Uh, and this lottery only happens once a year for a start date that is in October that same year. Uh, and, and so the, the limited numbers affect that, that as a viable option. Um, but I, I would note that um, as far as startups and entrepreneurs, there, it, it is potentially an option uh, for someone that is a, is a founder. You need to be careful about showing there's a true uh, employer-employee relationship. So that gets into how things are structured again and consulting with an immigration lawyer. If it is envisioned that that H one B the H one B would be a, a visa that that they would pursue, uh, it's important that there's a sort of there's control over that that founder somehow built into the way the company is organized. So through a board of directors or um, you know, you know, I'm kind of curious as to why that wouldn't be your go to right away. I mean, you mentioned all the other ones first. Is there a reason that's less desirable? Yeah, yeah. So it's. It's certainly worth putting your name in in the H one B visa lottery hat. I think you know it's it's very um, uh, low effort to do that, uh, but it's just the odds are not something you can rely on. Uh, you know you're looking at ten to twenty percent chances of getting the H one B, and yeah. a lot of people are are looking for I want to I want to get this thing up and running now. And so just I'll make a note on the timeline practically so so you can see how this works out. So if someone were to come to me today and they said, oh, I want, I want to explore an H-1B visa to, uh, to operate my company. Uh, I would have to tell them that, okay, uh, there are no H-1B visas, a number of numbers available right now. Uh, we can submit your name into a lottery in March of next year. And if you're lucky enough to get that H-1B uh, visa number, your start date could not be until October of 2024. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm at one last thing I want to cover here, but we've gone through a ton of information. Mm -hmm. But I've been hearing forever about this thing called startup visa. Uh, is that a thing? Is there such a thing? Are we going to get that? Right. Uh, where if you're a startup company, you automatically, you know, are allowed to come here and work and help our economy. What is that about? Yeah, so we, we don't have a what is exactly called a startup visa. And to an extent, it lose, used loosely, some of these visa categories we've been talking about have, are referred to as startup visas, depending on how they're prepared. Uh, but there, the closest thing we have now to a, a quote-unquote startup visa is something called the International Entrepreneur Parole um, Status, which is an application that can be made. Um, there are quite strict requirements about that. Um, and... Uh, and and uh, it's similar in, in ways you could say to an E2 investor visa with a minimum investment amount. And, and there are requirements about who, who the investment is actually coming from. Uh, but it is something that entrepreneurs should have on the radar. I would say that it has been little utilized since it was uh, initially unveiled because of processing times that were unrealistic. But um, processing times are shortening for that inter international entrepreneur parole visa. Uh, I, I wouldn't even call it a visa. It's a status that they confer 
for 30 months to get your get your business up and running. And if you meet certain benchmarks, it's it's renewable. Uh, but but it is something people should have on their radar. And it, it's frankly still um, they're ironing out the kinks on that category. Um, but it's the closest thing we have to uh, to a quote unquote startup visa. But uh, um, I, I should note, though, that parole is sort of this quasi status in immigration versus a visa, which is a, is a much more solid footing to be on. So there's a distinction to be made between a, what a visa is and parole, and this gets quite technical. Uh, but a parole at least would permit the ability to enter the U.S. for, for 30 months initially and then renew to, to run a business, uh, to, to get a business up and running. Uh, but there are there are some quite complicated requirements associated with that. And uh, and in terms of ironing out the kinks with with how long it takes for them to actually approve a case, that that is still a work in progress, but it's getting better and is something people should have on their radar. OK, great. All right. Well, we'll add that to the to the toolkit. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank you, Steve. We could talk all day about this. It's it's complex yet interesting. Uh, this is Roger Royce. I'm a partner with Haynes Boone. I'm talking with Stephen Malm. He is with Haynes Boone in San Francisco. He's an immigration lawyer. I forgot to mention, Stephen is also certified by the State Bar of California as an immigration and nationality law specialist by the California State Bar of California Board of Legal Specialization. We've been talking about immigration issues for startups. So, Steve, if people want to get a hold of you or learn or learn more, how do they do that? Yeah, so uh, I would welcome anyone to, to send me an email directly um, at, at stephen.malm at haynesboon.com or uh, to call me uh, on my direct line, 949-202-3077. That's 949-202-3077. And, um, I welcome any sort of an inquiry, frankly. Always, always happy to discuss um, any sort of immigration issue and, and see if there's some way I could be of assistance. Yep. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Roger. Appreciate it.